Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and the final three chapters from The Beasts of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. We're getting near the conclusion, and things are heating up pretty quickly here. And now, Chapter 19, The Last of the Kincaid. Shortly after the break of day, Tarzan was on deck noting the condition of the weather. The wind had abated. The sky was cloudless. Every condition seemed ideal for the commencement of the return voyage to Jungle Island, where the beasts were to be left, and then, home. The ape-man aroused the mate and gave instructions that the Kincaid sail at the earliest possible moment. The remaining members of the crew, safe in Lord Greystoke's assurance that they would not be prosecuted for their share in the villainies of the two Russians, hastened with cheerful alacrity to their several duties. The beasts, liberated from the confinement of the hold, wandered about the deck, not a little to the discomfiture of the crew in whose minds there remained a still vivid picture of the savagery of those beasts in conflict with those who had gone to their deaths beneath the fangs and talons which even now seemed itching for the soft flesh of further prey. Beneath the watchful eyes of Tarzan and Mugambi, however, Sheeta and the apes of Akut curbed their desires so that the men worked about the deck amongst them in far greater security than they imagined. At last the Kincaid slipped down the Ugambi and ran out among the shimmering waters of the Atlantic. Tarzan and Jane Clayton watched the verdure-clad shoreline receding in the ship's wake, and for once the ape-man left his native soil without one single pang of regret. No ship that sailed the seven seas could have borne him away from Africa to resume his search for his lost boy with half the speed that the Englishman would have desired, and the slow-moving Kincaid seemed scarce to move at all, to the impatient mind of the bereaved father. Yet the vessel made progress even when she seemed to be standing still, and presently the low hills of Jungle Island became distinctly visible upon the western horizon ahead. In the cabin of Alexander Polvich, the thing within the black box ticked, 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 with apparently unending monotony, but yet, second by second, a little arm which protruded from the periphery of one of its wheels came nearer and nearer to another little arm which projected from the hand which Polvich had set at a certain point upon the dial beside the clockwork. When those two arms touched one another, the ticking of the mechanism would cease forever. Jane and Tarzan stood upon the bridge looking out toward Jungle Island. The men were forward, also watching the land grow upward out of the ocean. The beasts had sought the shade of the galley, where they were curled up in sleep. All was quiet and peace upon the ship and upon the waters. Suddenly, and without warning, the cabin roof shot up into the air. A cloud of dense smoke puffed far above the Kincaid. There was a terrific explosion which shook the vessel from stem to stern. Instantly, pandemonium broke loose upon the deck. The apes of Akut, terrified by the sound, ran hither and thither, snarling and growling. Sheeta leaped here and there, screaming out his startled terror and hideous cries that sent the ice of fear straight to the hearts of the Kincaid's crew. Mugambi, too, was trembling. Only Tarzan of the apes and his wife retained their composure. Scarce had the debris settled and the ape-man was among the beasts, quieting their fears, talking to them in low, pacific tones, stroking their shaggy bodies and assuring them, as only he could, that the immediate danger was over. An examination of the wreckage showed that their greatest danger now lay in fire, for the flames were licking hungrily at the splintered wood of the wrecked cabin, and had already found a foothold upon the lower deck through a great jagged hole which the explosion had opened. 
By a miracle no member of the ship's company had been injured by the blast, the origin of which remained forever a total mystery to all but one, the sailor who knew that Povich had been aboard the Kincaid and in his cabin the previous night. He guessed the truth, but discretion sealed his lips. It would, doubtless, fare none too well for the man who had permitted the arch-enemy of them all aboard the ship in the watches of the night, where later he might set an infernal machine to blow them all to kingdom come. No, the man decided that he would keep this knowledge to himself. As the flames gained headway, it became apparent to Tarzan that whatever had caused the explosion had scattered some highly flammable substance upon the surrounding woodwork, for the water which they poured in from the pump seemed rather to spread than to extinguish the blaze. Fifteen minutes after the explosion, great black clouds of smoke were rising from the hold of the doomed vessel. The flames had reached the engine room, and the ship no longer moved toward the shore. Her fate was as certain as though the waters had already closed above her charred and smoking remains. "'It's useless to remain aboard her longer,' remarked the ape-man to the mate. "'There's no telling, but there may be other explosions. And as we cannot hope to save her, the safest thing which we can do is take to the boats without further loss of time and make land. Nor was there any other alternative. Only the sailors could bring away any belongings, for the fire, which had not yet reached the foxhole, had consumed all in the vicinity of the cabin which the explosion had not destroyed. Two boats were lowered, and as there was no sea, the landing was made with infinite ease. Eager and anxious, the beasts of Tarzan sniffed the familiar air of their native island as the small boats drew in toward the beach and scarce had their keels grated upon the sand than Sheeta and the apes of Akut were over the bows and racing swiftly toward the jungle. A half-sad smile curved the lips of the ape-man as he watched them go. "'Good-bye, my friends,' he murmured. "'You have been good and faithful allies, and I shall miss you.' "'They will return, will they not, dear?' asked Jane Clayton at his side. "'They may, and they may not,' replied the ape-man." They have been ill at ease since they were forced to accept so many human beings into their confidence. Mugambi and I alone affected them less, for he and I are, at best, but half human. You, however, and the members of the crew, are far too civilized for my beast. It is you whom they are fleeing. Doubtless they feel that they cannot trust themselves in the close vicinity of so much perfectly good food without the danger that they may help themselves to a mouthful sometime by mistake." Jane laughed. "'I think they are just trying to escape you,' she retorted. "'You are always making them stop something which they see no reason why they should not do. Like little children, they're doubtless delighted at this opportunity to flee from the zone of parental discipline. If they come back, though, I hope they won't come by night.' "'Or come hungry, eh?' laughed Tarzan. For two hours after landing, the little party stood watching the burning ship which they had abandoned. Then there came faintly to them from across the water the sound of a second explosion. The Kincaid settled rapidly almost immediately thereafter, and sank within a few minutes. The cause of the second explosion was less a mystery than that of the first, the mate attributing it to the bursting of the boilers when the flames had finally reached them. But what had caused the first explosion was a subject of considerable speculation among the stranded company. We'll return with Chapter 20, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 20, Jungle Island Again. The first consideration of the party was to locate fresh water and make camp, for all knew that their term of existence upon Jungle Island might be drawn out to months, or even years. 
Tarzan knew the nearest water, and to this he immediately led the party. Here the men fell to work to construct shelters and rude furniture, while Tarzan went into the jungle after meat, leaving the faithful Mugambi and the Mosula woman to guard Jane, whose safety he would never trust to any member of the King Cage's cutthroat crew. Lady Greystoke suffered far greater anguish than any other of the castaways, for the blow to her hopes and her already cruelly lacerated mother heart lay not in her own privations, but in the knowledge that she might now never be able to learn the fate of her firstborn, or do aught to discover his whereabouts, or ameliorate his condition, a condition which imagination naturally pictured in the most frightful forms. For two weeks the party divided the time amongst the various duties which had been allotted to each. A daylight watch was maintained from sunrise to sunset upon a bluff near the camp, a jutting shoulder of rock which overlooked the sea. Here, ready for instant lighting, was gathered a huge pile of dry branches, while from a lofty pole which they had set in the ground there floated an improvised distress signal, fashioned from a red undershirt which belonged to the mate of the Kincaid. But never a speck upon the horizon that might be sail or smoke rewarded the tired eyes that in their endless, hopeless vigil strained daily out across the vast expanse of ocean. It was Tarzan who suggested, finally, that they attempt to construct a vessel that would bear them back to the mainland. He alone could show them how to fashion rude tools, and when the idea had taken root in the minds of the men, they were eager to commence their labors. But as time went on, and the Herculean nature of their task became more and more apparent, they fell to grumbling, and to quarreling among themselves, so that to the other dangers were now added dissension and suspicion. More than before did Tarzan now fear to leave Jane among the half-brutes of the King Cage crew, but hunting he must do, for none other could so surely go forth and return with meat as he. Sometimes Mugambi spelled him at the hunting, but the black spear and arrows were never so sure of results as the rope and knife of the ape-man. Finally the men shirked their work, going off into the jungle by twos to explore and to hunt. All this time the camp had had no sight of Sheeta, or Akut, and the other great apes, though Tarzan had sometimes met them in the jungle as he hunted. And as matters tended from bad to worse in the camp of the castaways, upon the east coast of Jungle Island, another camp came into being upon the north coast. Here in a little cove lay a small schooner, the Cowrie, whose decks had but a few days since run red with the blood of her officers and the loyal members of her crew, for the Cowrie had fallen upon bad days when it had shipped such men as Gust and Momula, the Maori, and that arch-fiend Kai Shang of Fashan. There were others, too, ten of them all told, the scum of the South Sea ports, but Gust and Momula and Kai Shang were the brains and cunning of the company. It was they who had instigated the mutiny that they might seize and divide the catch of pearls, which constituted the wealth of the cowrie's cargo. It was Kai Shang who had murdered the captain as he lay asleep in his berth, and it had been Momula the Maori who had led the attack upon the officer of the watch. Gust, after his own peculiar habit, had found means to delegate to the others the actual taking of life. Not that Gust entertained any scruples on the subject, other than those which induced in him a rare regard for his own personal safety. There is always a certain element of risk to the assassin, for victims of deadly assault are seldom prone to die quietly and considerately. There is always a certain element of risk to go so far as to dispute the issue with the murderer. It was this chance of dispute which Gust preferred to forego. 
"'but now that the work was done "'the Swede aspired to the position "'of highest command among the mutineers. "'He had even gone so far as to appropriate "'and wear certain articles "'belonging to the murdered captain of the cowry, "'articles of apparel which bore upon them "'the badges and insignia of authority. "'Kai Shang was peeved. "'He had no love for authority, "'and certainly not the slightest intention "'of submitting to the domination "'of an ordinary Swede sailor. "'The seeds of discontent were, therefore, "'already planted in the camp of the mutineers of the Cowry "'at the north edge of the jungle island. "'But Kai Shang realized that he must act with circumspection, "'for Gust, alone of the motley horde, "'possessed sufficient knowledge of navigation "'to get them out of the South Atlantic "'and around the Cape into more congenial waters, "'where they might find a market for their ill-gotten wealth, "'and no questions asked. The day before they sighted Jungle Island and discovered the little landlocked harbor upon the bosom of which the cowry now rode quietly at anchor, the watch had discovered the smoke and funnels of a warship upon the southern horizon. The chance of being spoken to and investigated by a man of war appealed not at all to any of them, so they put into hiding for a few days until the danger should have passed. And now Gust did not wish to venture out to sea again. There was no telling, he insisted but that the ship they had seen was actually searching for them. Kai Shang pointed out that such could not be the case, since it was impossible for any human being other than themselves to have knowledge of what had transpired aboard the cowrie. But Gust was not to be persuaded. In his wicked heart he nursed a scheme whereby he might increase his share of the booty by something like one hundred percent. He alone could sail the cowrie, therefore the others could not leave Jungle Island without him. But what was there to prevent Gust, with just sufficient men to man the schooner, slipping away from Kai Zhang, Momulo the Maori, and some half of the crew when opportunity presented? It was for this opportunity that Gust waited. Some day there would come a moment when Kai Zhang, Momula, and three or four of the others would be absent from camp, exploring or hunting. The Swede racked his brain for some plan whereby he might successfully lure from the sight of the anchored ship those whom he had determined to abandon. To this end he organized hunting party after hunting party, but always the devil of perversity seemed to enter the soul of Kai Shang, so that wily Celestial would never hunt except in the company of Gust himself. One day Kai Shang spoke secretly with Momulo the Maori, pouring into the brown ear of his companion the suspicions which he harbored concerning the Swede. Momulo was for going immediately and running a long knife through the heart of the traitor. It is true that Kai Shang had no other evidence than the natural cunning of his own knavish soul, but he imagined in the intentions of Gust what he himself would have been glad to accomplish had the means lain at hand. But he dared not let Mosula slay the Swede, upon whom they depended to guide them to their destination. They decided, however, that it would do no harm to attempt to frighten Gust into acceding to their demands, and with this purpose in mind the Maori sought out the self-constituted commander of the party. When he broached the subject of immediate departure, Gust again raised his former objection, that the warship might very probably be patrolling the sea directly in their southern path, waiting for them to make the attempt to reach other waters. Momula scoffed at the fears of his fellow, pointing out that as no one aboard any warship knew of their mutiny, there could be no reason why they should be suspected. "'Ah!' exclaimed Gust. "'This is where you are wrong.' "'This is where you are lucky that you have an educated man like me to tell you what to do. "'You are an ignorant savage, Mumula, and so you know nothing of wireless.' "'The Maori leaped to his feet 
and laid his hand upon the hilt of his knife. "'I am no savage,' he shouted. "'I was only joking,' the Swede hastened to explain. "'We are old friends, Mumula. We cannot afford to quarrel, at least not while old Kai Shang is plotting to steal all the pearls from us. If he could find a man to navigate the cowrie, he would leave us in a minute.' "'All his talk about getting away from here "'is just because he has some scheme in his head to get rid of us.' "'But the wireless?' asked Mumula. "'What has the wireless to do with our remaining here?' "'Oh, yes,' replied Gust, scratching his head. "'He was wondering if the Maori were really so ignorant "'as to believe the preposterous lie he was about to unload upon him. "'Oh, yes. "'You see, every warship is equipped with what they call a wireless apparatus.' It lets them talk to other ships hundreds of miles away, and it lets them listen to all that is said on those ships. Now, you see, when you fellows were shooting up the cowry, you did a whole lot of loud talking, and there isn't any doubt but that that warship was a lion off south of us listening to it all. Of course, they might not have learned the name of the ship, but they heard enough to know that the crew of some ship was mutinying and killing her officers. "'So you see that they'll be wanting to search every ship they sight for a long time to come, "'and they may not be far away now.' "'When he had ceased speaking, the Swede strove to assume an air of composure "'that his listener might not have his suspicions aroused "'as to the truth of the statements that had just been made. "'Mamula sat for some time in silence, eyeing Gust. "'At last he rose. "'You are a great liar,' he said. "'If you don't get us on our way by tomorrow. "'you'll never have another chance to lie. "'For I had two of the men saying "'that they'd like to run a knife into you, "'and that if you kept them in this hole any longer, "'they would do it. "'Go and ask Kai Zhang if there's not a wireless,' "'replied Gust. "'He will tell you that there is such a thing, "'and that vessels can talk to one another "'across hundreds of miles of water. "'Then say to the two men who wish to kill me "'that if they do so, "'they will never live to spend their share of the swag.' "'for only I can get you safely to any port.' "'So Mamula went to Kai Zhang "'and asked him if there was such an apparatus "'as a wireless by means of which ships "'could talk with each other at great distances, "'and Kai Zhang told him that there was. "'Mamula was puzzled, "'but still he wished to leave the island "'and was willing to take his chances on the open sea "'rather than to remain longer in the monotony of the camp. "'If we only had someone else who could navigate his ship,' "'wailed Kai Zhang.' That afternoon, Mamula went hunting with two other Maoris. They hunted toward the south, and had not gone far from camp when they were surprised by the sound of voices ahead of them in the jungle. They knew that none of their own men had preceded them, and as all were convinced that the island was uninhabited, they were inclined to flee in terror on the hypothesis that the place was haunted, possibly by the ghosts of the murdered officers and men of the cowry. But Mamula was even more curious than he was superstitious and so he quelled his natural desire to flee from the supernatural. Motioning his companions to follow his example, he dropped to his hands and knees, and with quakings of heart threw the jungle in the direction from which came the voices of the unseen speakers. Presently, at the edge of a little clearing, he halted, and there he breathed a deep sigh of relief, for plainly before him he saw two flesh-and-blood men sitting upon a fallen log and talking earnestly together. One was Schneider, mate of the Kincaid, "'and the other was a seaman named Schmidt. "'I think we can do it, Schmidt,' Schneider was saying. "'A good canoe wouldn't be hard to build, "'and three of us could paddle it to the mainland in a day "'if the wind was right and the sea reasonably calm. 
"'There ain't no use waiting for the men "'to build a big enough boat to take the whole party, "'for they're sore now, "'sick of working like slaves all day long. "'It ain't none of our business anyway "'to save the Englishman. "'Let him look out for himself,' says I. "'He paused for a moment, "'and then eyeing the other to note "'the effect of his next words, he continued, "'But we might take the woman. "'It would be a shame to leave a nice-looking piece "'like she is in such a gut-forsaken hole "'as this here island.' "'Schmidt looked up and grinned. "'So that's how she's blowing, is it?' he asked. "'Why didn't you say so in the first place? "'What's in it for me if I help you?' "'She ought to pay us well to get her back to civilization,' "'explained Schneider. "'And I tell you what I'll do. "'I'll just whack up with the two men that helps me. "'I'll take half, and they can divide the other half. "'You and whoever the other bloke is. "'I'm sick of this place, "'and the sooner I get out of it, the better I'll like it. "'What do you say?' "'Suits me,' replied Schmidt. "'I wouldn't know how to reach the mainland myself "'and know that none of the other fellows would. "'So as you're the only one that knows anything in navigation, "'you're the fellow I'll tie to.' "'Momula the Maori pricked up his ears. "'He had a smattering of every tongue that is spoken upon the seas, "'and more than a few times he had sailed on English ships, "'so that he understood fairly well "'all that had passed between Schneider and Schmidt "'since he had stumbled upon them. "'He rose to his feet and stepped into the clearing.' Schneider and his companion started as nervously as though a ghost had risen before them. Schneider reached for his revolver. Momula raised his right hand, palm forward, as a sign of his specific intentions. "'I am a friend,' he said. "'I heard you. But do not fear that I will reveal what you have said. I can help you, and you can help me.' He was addressing Schneider. "'You can navigate a ship, but you have no ship. We have a ship.' "'but no one to navigate it. "'If you will come with us and ask no questions, "'we will let you take the ship where you will "'after you've landed us at a certain port, "'the name of which we will give you later. "'You can take the woman of whom you speak, "'and we will ask no questions either. "'Is it a bargain?' "'Schneider desired more information, "'and got as much as Momula thought best to give him. "'Then the Maori suggested that they speak with Kai Shang.' The two members of the Kincaid's company followed Momula and his fellows to a point in the jungle close by the camp of the mutineers. Here Momula hid them while he went in search of Kai Zhang, first admonishing his Maori companions to stand guard over the two sailors lest they change their minds and attempt to escape. Schneider and Schmidt were virtually prisoners, although they did not know it. Presently Momula returned with Kai Zhang, "'to whom he had briefly narrated the details "'of the stroke of good fortune that had come to them. "'The Chinaman spoke at length with Schneider, "'until, notwithstanding his natural suspicion "'of the sincerity of all men, "'he became quite convinced that Schneider "'was quite as much a rogue as himself "'and that the fellow was anxious to leave the island. "'These two premises accepted there could be little doubt "'that Schneider would prove trustworthy "'insofar as accepting the command of the cowry was concerned. "'After that, Kai Shang knew that he could find means to coerce the man into submission to his further wishes. When Schneider and Schmidt left them and set out in the direction of their own camp, it was with feelings of far greater relief than they had experienced in many a day. Now, at last, they saw a feasible plan for leaving the island upon a seaworthy craft. There would be no more hard labor at shipbuilding, and no risking their lives upon a crudely built makeshift that would be quite as likely to go to the bottom as it would to reach the mainland. Also, they were to have assistance in capturing the woman, or rather women, for when Momula had learned that there was a black woman in the other camp, he had insisted that she be brought along as well as the white woman. 
As Kai Shang and Momula entered their camp, it was with a realization that they no longer needed Gust. They marched straight to the tent in which they might expect to find him at that hour of the day, for though it would have been more comfortable for the entire party to remain aboard the ship, they had mutually decided that it would be safer for all concerned were they to pitch their camp ashore. Each knew that in the heart of the others was sufficient treachery to make it unsafe for any member of the party to go ashore leaving the others in possession of the cowrie. So not more than two or three men at a time were ever permitted aboard the vessel, unless all balance of the company was there too. As the two crossed toward Gus's tent, the Maori felt the edge of his long knife with one grimy, callous thumb. The Swede would have felt far from comfortable could he have seen this significant action, or read what was passing amid the convolutions of the brown man's cruel brain. Now it happened that Gust was at that moment in the tent occupied by the cook, and this tent stood but a few feet from his own, so that he heard the approach of Kai Shang and Momula, although he did not, of course, dream that it had any special significance for him. Chance had it, though, that he glanced out of the doorway of the cook's tent at the very moment that Kai Shang and Momula approached the entrance to his, and he thought that he noted a stealthiness in their movements that comported poorly with amicable or friendly intentions. And then, just as they two slunk within the interior, Gust caught a glimpse of the long knife which Momula the Maori was then carrying behind his back. The Swede's eyes opened wide, and a funny little sensation assailed the roots of his hairs. Also he turned almost white beneath his tan. Quite precipitately he left the cook's tent. He was not one who required a detailed exposition of intentions that were all quite too obvious. As surely as though he had heard them plotting, he knew that Kai Shang and Momula had come to take his life. The knowledge that he alone could navigate the cowrie had, up to now, been sufficient assurance of his safety. But quite evidently something had occurred of which he had no knowledge that would make it quite worth the while of his co-conspirators to eliminate him. Without a pause, Gus darted across the beach and into the jungle. He was afraid of the jungle. Uncanny noises that were indeed frightful came forth from its recesses, the tangled mazes of the mysterious country back of the beach. But if Gus was afraid of the jungle, he was far more afraid of Kai Shang and Momula. The dangers of the jungle were more or less problematical, while the danger that menaced him at the hands of his companions was a perfectly well-known quantity, which might be expressed in terms of a few inches of cold steel or the coil of a light rope. He had seen Kai Shang garret a man at Pai Sha in a dark alleyway back of Lu Kutai's place. He feared the rope, therefore, more than he did the knife of the Maori, but he feared them both too much to remain within reach of either. Therefore, he chose the pitiless jungle. We'll return with the final chapter, chapter 21, right after these sponsor messages. And now, chapter 21, The Law of the Jungle. In Tarzan's camp, by dint of threats and promised rewards, the ape man had finally succeeded in getting the hull of a large skiff almost completed. Much of the work he and Mugambi had done with their own hands, in addition to furnishing the camp with meat. Schneider, the mate, had been doing considerable grumbling, and had at last openly deserted the work and gone off into the jungle with Schmidt to hunt. He said that he wanted a rest, and Tarzan, rather than add to the unpleasantness which already made camp life almost unendurable, had permitted the two men to depart without a remonstrance. Upon the following day, however, Schneider affected a feeling of remorse for his action, and set to work with a will upon the skiff. 
Schmidt also worked good-naturedly, and Lord Greystoke congratulated himself that at last the men had awakened to the necessity for the labor which was being asked of them, and to their obligations to the balance of the party. It was with a feeling of greater relief than he had experienced for many a day that he set out that noon to hunt deep in the jungle for a herd of small deer, which Schneider reported that he and Schmidt had seen there the day before. The direction in which Schneider had reported seeing the deer was toward the southwest, and to that point the ape-man swung easily through the tangled verdure of the forest. As he went there, approached from the north a half-dozen ill-featured men who went stealthily through the jungle as go men bent upon the commission of a wicked act. They thought that they had traveled unseen, but behind them, almost from the moment they quitted their own camp, a tall man crept upon their trail. In the man's eyes were hate and fear, and a great curiosity. Why went Kai Shang and Mumula and the others thus stealthily toward the south? What did they expect to find there? Gust shook his low-browed head in perplexity. But he would know. He would follow them and learn their plans, and then if he could thwart them, he would. That went without question. At first he had thought that they had searched for him, but finally his better judgment assured him that such could not be the case, since they had accomplished all they really desired by chasing him out of camp. Never would Kai Shang or Momulo go to such pains to slay him or another, unless it would put money in their pockets. And as Gust had no money, it was evident that they were searching for someone else. Presently the party he trailed came to a halt. Its members concealed themselves in the foliage bordering the game trail along which they had come. Gust, that he might better observe, clambered into the branches of a tree to the rear of them, being careful that the leafy fronds hid him from the view of his erstwhile mates. He had not long to wait before he saw a strange white man approach carefully along the trail from the south. At sight of the newcomer, Momula and Kai Shang arose from their places of concealment and greeted him. Gust could not overhear what passed between them. Then the man returned in the direction from which he had come. He was Schneider. Nearing his camp, he circled to the opposite side of it, and presently came running in breathlessly. Excitedly, he hastened to Mugambi. Quick, he cried. Those apes of yours have caught Schmidt, and will kill him if we do not hasten to his aid. You alone can call them off. Take Jones and Sullivan. You may need help. And get to him as quick as you can. Follow the game trail south for about a mile. I will remain here. I am too spent with running to go back with you. And the maid of the Kincaid threw himself upon the ground, panting as though he was almost done for. Mugambi hesitated. He had been left to guard the two women. He did not know what to do. And then Jane Clayton, who had heard Schneider's story, added her pleas to those of the mate. "'Do not delay,' she urged. "'We shall be all right here. Mr. Schneider will remain with us. Go, Mugambi. The poor fellow must be saved.' Schmidt, who lay hidden in a bush at the edge of the camp, grinned. Mugambi, heeding the commands of his mistress, though still doubtful of the wisdom of his action, started off toward the south, with Jones and Sullivan at his heels. No sooner had he disappeared than Schmidt rose and darted north into the jungle, and a few minutes later the face of Kai Shang of Fashan appeared at the edge of the clearing. Schneider saw the Chinaman, and motioned to him that the coast was clear. Jane Clayton and the Mosula woman were sitting at the opening of the former's tent, their backs toward the approaching ruffians. The first intimation that either had of the presence of strangers in camp was the sudden appearance of a half-dozen ragged villains about them. "'Come!' said Kai Shang, 
motioning that the two arise and follow him. Jane Clayton sprang to her feet and looked about for Schneider, only to see him standing behind the newcomers, a grin upon his face. At his side stood Schmidt. Instantly she saw that she had been made the victim of a plot. "'What's the meaning of this?' she asked, addressing the mate. "'It means that we found a ship and that we can now escape from Jungle Island,' replied the man. "'Why did you send Mugambi and the others into the jungle?' she inquired. "'They're not coming with us. Only you and I, and the Mosula woman.' "'Come,' repeated Kai Zhang, and seized Jane Clayton's wrist. One of the Maoris grasped a black woman by the arm, and when she would have screamed, struck her across the mouth. Mugambi was racing through the jungle toward the south. Jones and Sullivan trailed far behind. For a mile he continued upon his way to the relief of Schmidt, but no sign saw he of the missing man or of any of the apes of Akut. At last he halted and called aloud the summons which he and Tarzan had used to hail the great anthropoids, but there was no response. Jones and Sullivan came up with the black warrior as the latter stood voicing his weird call. For another half-mile Mugambi searched, calling occasionally. Finally the truth flashed upon him, and then, like a frightened deer, he wheeled and dashed back toward camp. Arriving there, it was but a moment before full confirmation of his fears were impressed upon him. Lady Greystoke and the Mosula woman were gone. So, likewise, was Schneider. When Jones and Sullivan joined Mugambi, he would have killed them in his anger, thinking them parties to the plot, but they finally succeeded in partially convincing him that they had known nothing of it. As they stood speculating upon the probable whereabouts of the women and their abductor, and the purpose which Schneider had in mind in taking them from camp, Tarzan and the ape swung from the branches of a tree and crossed the clearing toward them. His keen eyes detected at once that something was radically wrong, and when he had heard Mugambi's story, his jaws clicked angrily together as he knitted his brows in thought. What could the mate hope to accomplish by taking Jane Clayton from a camp upon a small island from which there was no escape from the vengeance of Tarzan? The ape-man could not believe the fellow such a fool, and then a slight realization of the truth dawned upon him. Schneider would not have committed such an act unless he had been reasonably sure that there was a way by which he could quit Jungle Island with his prisoners. But why had he taken the black woman as well? There must have been others, one of whom wanted her. Come, said Tarzan, there is but one thing to do now, and that is to follow the trail. As he finished speaking, a tall, ungainly figure emerged from the jungle north of the camp. He came straight toward the four men. He was an entire stranger to all of them not one of whom had dreamed that another human being other than those of their own camp dwelt upon the unfriendly shores of Jungle Island. It was Gust. He came directly to the point. "'Your women were stolen,' he said. "'If you want ever to see them again, come quickly and follow me. If we do not hurry, the cowry will be standing out to sea by the time we reach your anchorage.' "'Who are you?' asked Tarzan. "'What do you know of the theft of my wife and the black woman?' I heard Kai Shang and Momula the Maori plot with two men of your camp. They had chased me from our camp and would have killed me. Now I will get even with them. Come. Gus led the four men of the Kincaid's camp at a rapid trot through the jungle toward the north. Would they come to the sea in time? But a few more minutes would answer the question. And when at last the little party did break through the last of the screening foliage and the harbor and the ocean lay before them, they realized that fate had been most cruelly unkind for the cowrie was already under sail and moving slowly out of the mouth of the harbor into the open sea. 
"'What were they to do?' "'Tarzan's broad chest rose and fell "'to the force of his pent emotions. "'The last blow seemed to have fallen, "'and if ever in all his life "'Tarzan and the apes had had occasion to abandon hope, "'it was now that he saw the ship bearing his wife "'to some frightful fate "'moving gracefully over the rippling water, "'so very near, and yet so hideously far away.' In silence he stood watching the vessel. He saw it turn toward the east and finally disappear around a headland on its way he knew not whither. Then he dropped upon his haunches and buried his face in his hands. It was after dark that the five men returned to the camp on the east shore. The night was hot and sultry. No slightest breeze ruffled the foliage of the trees or rippled the mirror-like surface of the ocean. Only a gentle swell rolled softly in upon the beach. Never had Tarzan seen the great Atlantic so ominously at peace. He was standing at the edge of the beach, gazing out to sea in the direction of the mainland, his mind filled with sorrow and hopelessness, when from the jungle close behind the camp came the uncanny wail of a panther. There was a familiar note in the weird cry, and almost mechanically Tarzan turned his head and answered. A moment later the tawny figure of Sheeta slunk out into the half-light of the beach. There was no moon, but the sky was brilliant with stars. Silently the savage brute came to the side of the man. It had been long since Tarzan had seen his old fighting companion, but the soft purr was sufficient to assure him that the animal still recalled the bonds which had united them in the past. The ape-man let his fingers fall upon the beast's coat, and as Sheeta pressed close against his leg, he caressed and fondled the wicked head while his eyes continued to search the blackness of the waters. Presently he started. What was that? He strained his eyes into the night. Then he turned and called aloud to the men smoking upon their blankets in the camp. They came running to his side, but Gust hesitated when he saw the nature of Tarzan's companion. Look! cried Tarzan. A light! A ship's light! It must be the cavalry. They're becalmed. And then, with an exclamation of renewed hope, We can reach them! "'The skiff will carry us easily.' "'Gus demurred. "'They are well armed,' he warned. "'We could not take the ship, just five of us.' "'There are six now,' replied Tarzan, "'pointed to Sheeta, "'and we can have more still in a half hour. "'Sheeta is the equivalent of twenty men, "'and the others I can bring will add full a hundred "'to our fighting strength. "'You do not know them.' "'The ape-man turned and raised his head toward the jungle, "'while there peeled from his lips,' "'time after time, the fearsome cry of the bull-ape "'who would summon his fellows. "'Presently from the jungle came an answering cry, "'and then another, and another. "'Gust shuddered. "'Among what sort of creatures had fate thrown him? "'Were not Kai-Shang and Momula "'to be preferred to this great white giant "'who stroked a panther "'and called to the beasts of the jungle? "'In a few minutes the apes of Akut "'came crashing through the underbrush "'and out onto the beach.' while well, in the meantime the five men had been struggling with the unwieldy bulk of the skiff's hull. By dint of Herculean efforts they had managed to get it to the water's edge. The oars from the two small boats of the Kincaid, which had been washed away by an offshore wind the very night that the party had landed, had been in use to support the canvas of the sailcloth tents. These were hastily requisitioned, and by the time Akut and his followers came down to the water, all was ready for embarkation. Once again the hideous crew entered the service of their master, and without question took up their places in the skiff. The four men, for Gust could not be prevailed upon to accompany the party, fell to the oars, using them paddle-wise, 
while some of the apes followed their example, and presently the ungainly skiff was moving quietly out to sea in the direction of the light which rose and fell gently with the swell. A sleepy sailor kept a poor vigil upon the cowrie's deck, while in the cabin below Schneider paced up and down arguing with Jane Clayton. The woman had found a revolver in a table drawer in the room in which she had been locked, and now she kept the mate of the Kincaid at bay with the weapon. The Mosula woman kneeled behind her, while Schneider paced up and down before the door, threatening and pleading and promising, but all to no avail. Presently from the deck above came a shout of warning and a shot. For an instant Jane Clayton relaxed her vigilance and turned her eyes toward the cabin skylight. Simultaneously Schneider was upon her. The first intimation the watch had that there was another craft within a thousand miles of the cowrie came when he saw the head and shoulders of a man poked over the ship's side. Instantly the fellow sprang to his feet with a cry and leveled his revolver at the intruder. It was his cry and the subsequent report of the revolver which threw Jane Clayton off her guard. Upon deck the quiet of fancied security soon gave place to the wildest pandemonium. The crew of the cowrie rushed above armed with revolvers, cutlasses, and the long knives that many of them habitually wore. But the alarm had come too late. Already the beasts of Tarzan were upon the ship's deck, with Tarzan and the two men of the King Cage crew. In the face of the frightful beasts, the courage of the mutineers wavered and broke. Those with revolvers fired a few scattering shots and then raced for some place of supposed safety. Into the shrouds went some, but the apes of Akut were more at home there than they. Screaming with terror, the Maoris were dragged from their lofty perches. The beast, uncontrolled by Tarzan, who had gone in search of Jane, loosed the full fury of their savage natures upon the unhappy wretches who fell into their clutches. Sheeta, in the meanwhile, had felt his great fangs sink into but a single jugular. For a moment he mauled the corpse, and then he spied Kai Shang darting down the companionway toward his cabin. With a shrill scream, Sheeta was after him, a scream which awoke an almost equally uncanny cry in the throat of the terror-stricken Chinaman. But Kai Shang reached his cabin a fraction of a second ahead of the panther, and leaping within, slammed the door. Just too late, Sheeta's great body hurtled against it before the catch engaged, and a moment later Kai Shang was gibbering and shrieking in the back of an upper berth. Lightly Sheeta sprang after his victim, and presently the wicked days of Kai Shang of Fashan were ended, and Sheeta was gorging himself upon tough and stringy flesh. A moment scarcely had elapsed after Schneider leaped upon Jane Clayton and wrenched the revolver from her hand when the door of the cabin opened and a tall and half-naked white man stood framed within the portal. Silently he leaped across the cabin. Schneider felt sinewy fingers at his throat. He turned his head to see who had attacked him, and his eyes went wide when he saw the face of the ape-man close above his own. Grimly the fingers tightened upon the mate's throat. He tried to scream, to plead, but no sound came forth. His eyes protruded as he struggled for freedom, for breath, for life. Jane Clayton seized her husband's hands and tried to drag them from the throat of the dying man, but Tarzan only shook his head. Not again, he said quietly. Before I have permitted scoundrels to live, only to suffer and have you suffer for my mercy. This time we shall make sure of one scoundrel, sure that he will never again harm us or another. And with a sudden wrench he twisted the neck of the perfidious mate until there was a sharp crack, and the man's body lay limp and motionless in the ape-man's grasp. With a gesture of disgust Tarzan tossed the corpse aside. Then he returned to the deck, followed by Jane and the Mosula woman.
The battle there was over. Schmidt and Momula and two others alone remained alive of all the company of the cowrie, for they had found sanctuary in the foxhole. The others had died horribly, and as they deserved, beneath the fangs and talons of the beasts of Tarzan. And in the morning the sun rose on a grisly sight upon the deck of the unhappy cowrie. But this time the blood which stained her white planking was the blood of the guilty, and not of the innocent. Tarzan brought forth the men who had hidden in the foxhole, and without promises of immunity from punishment, forced them to help work the vessel. The only alternative was immediate death. A stiff breeze had risen with the sun, and with canvas spread the cowry set in toward Jungle Island, where a few hours later Tarzan picked up Gust and bid farewell to Sheeta and the apes of Akut, for here he set the beasts ashore to pursue the wild and natural life they loved so well. Nor did they lose a moment's time in disappearing into the cool depths of their beloved jungle. That they knew that Tarzan was to leave them may be doubted, except possibly in the case of the more intelligent Akut, who alone of all the others remained upon the beach as the small boat drew away toward the schooner, carrying his savage lord and master from him. And as long as their eyes could span the distance, Jane and Tarzan, standing upon the deck, saw the lonely figure of the shaggy anthropoid motionless upon the surf-beaten sands of Jungle Island. It was three days later that the cowrie fell in with Her Majesty's Stoop of War shore water, through whose wireless Lord Greystoke soon got in communication with London. Thus he learned that which filled his and his wife's heart with joy and thanksgiving. Little Jack was safe at Lord Greystoke's townhouse. It was not until they reached London that they learned the details of the remarkable chain of circumstances that had preserved the infant unharmed. It developed that Rokoff, fearing to take the child aboard the Kincaid by day, had hidden it in a low den where nameless infants were harbored, intending to carry it to the steamer after dark. His confederate and chief lieutenant, Polvich, true to the long years of teaching of his wily master, had at last succumbed to the treachery and greed that had always marked his superior, and, lured by the thoughts of the immense ransom that he might win by returning the child unharmed, had divulged the secret of its parentage to the woman who maintained the foundling asylum. Through her he had arranged for the substitution of another infant, knowing full well that never until it was too late would Rokoff suspect the trick that had been played upon him. The woman had promised to keep the child until Polvich returned to England, but she, in turn, had been tempted to betray her trust by the lure of gold, and so had opened negotiations with Lord Greystoke's solicitors for the return of the child. Esmeralda, the old Negro nurse whose absence on a vacation in America at the time of the abduction of little Jack had been attributed by her as the cause of the calamity, had returned and positively identified the infant. The ransom had been paid, and within ten days of the date of his kidnapping, the future Lord Greystoke, none the worse for his experience, had been returned to his father's home. And so that last and greatest of Nicholas Rokoff's many rascalities had not only miserably miscarried through the treachery he had taught his only friend, but it had resulted in the arch-villain's death, and given to Lord and Lady Greystoke a peace of mind that neither could have ever felt so long as the vital spark remained in the body of the Russian, and his malign mind was free to formulate new atrocities against them. Rokoff was dead, and while the fate of Polvich was unknown, they had every reason to believe that he had succumbed to the dangers of the jungle where last they had seen him, the malicious tool of his master. And thus, in so far as they might know, they were to be freed forever from the menace of these two men, the only enemies which Tarzan and the apes ever had an occasion to fear, because they struck at him cowardly blows, through those he loved. 
It was a happy family party that were reunited in Greystoke House the day that Lord Greystoke and his lady landed upon English soil from the deck of the shore water. Accompanying them were Mugambi and the Mosula woman, whom he had found in the bottom of the canoe that night upon the bank of the little tributary of the Ugambi. The woman had preferred to cling to her new lord and master rather than return to the marriage she had tried to escape. Tarzan had proposed to them that they might find a home upon his vast African estates in the land of the Waziri, where they were to be sent as soon as opportunity presented itself. Possibly we shall see them all there amid the savage romance of the grim jungle and the great plains where Tarzan of the apes loves best to be. Who knows? Thus ends The Beasts of Tarzan. We hope you enjoyed our story very much. We're going to keep the next story a secret, but I guarantee you, you'll be looking forward to a good one. Thank you all so very, very much for joining us. Please do send a review for 1001 Stories for the Road if you get a chance. We would appreciate that very much, and it tells us where you come from and how you feel about our show. Until one Sunday soon, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.